Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. Before we start today's show, if you want to hear more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff. I cover my latest stock picks, market commentary, and more. All right. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. I am extremely excited about my guest today. We've been buddies for a long time. Um, he knows more about advertising than anyone else I've ever met. He's taught me a ton about crypto. Um, my buddy, Nick Widmer, has uh, worked on some huge advertising campaigns from Jeep to Progressive to MGM, has made commercials that appeared as Super Bowl ads. Um, he's been at Arnold, McCann, H Collective, and currently an account supervisor at Havas. Nick Widmer, man, good to have you on the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the intro, man. And like I was just saying, I've been, I've been loving this podcast. You, 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 you're a natural, man. It's, it's been, it's been a, a pleasure to listen to. You're too kind, man. I, uh, primitive too. Yeah. I, I'm sure everyone, the whole <laughs> five people listening to this podcast. <laughs> Come on. There should I be just, more. I wanted to start off by asking you um, how you got started with advertising. And obviously, this is an industry and it, going through a bunch of change right now. So talk about some of the changes you've seen over time and some of the changes happening right now. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, it's funny. The ad, the ad industry is funny because you basically, I kind of like to describe it as like the self-described like bad boy of corporate America as an industry, you know? And for me, I, I got into it because A, I wanted to be like a film. I, I, I studied filmmaking in college and, uh, and history and I, I wanted to work on on sets and TV shows and, and movies. And I actually had an internship. I was a, a page on the late show with David Letterman. And then I did some production assistant jobs um, in, in the early phase right out of college. And that's kind of a hard life. You try to be a full-time, you know, production assistant, producer, um, TV film crew. That's a lot of, you know, not really steady work. Um, one job after the next uh, kind of weird hours and, and tough to have a, a steady pay. So I, I, I Started to look at, I started to look at my career and think like, what can I do here that is still allow me some creative, but also going to allow me to make enough money to move out of my parents' house in, in Long Island. And I remember I, I went and had some informational interviews at a few advertising industries in New York and Boston. And like right away, if you've ever been into an ad ad agency, um, they all try to you know out cool and out casual, you know the next one. So there's a lot of allure there with people wearing, you know flip-flops and and you know t-shirts to work and drinking beer and I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool after like interviewing at a lot of places that were wearing suits and telling me to shave I kind of said all right well I think I could I think I could work here um and then yeah I got hired at, at Arnold in Boston um as a you know basically an assistant account executive on the progressive account which is obviously a, a pretty massive account in terms of like how much ads they're running all the time which if anyone you know, looks at a screen at any point longer than a few hours, you're probably going to see a progressive ad. So I really kind of cut my teeth there working on everything from social to digital, uh, to radio to broadcast. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I, that's kind of how it started. I got lucky. I got, I got lucky on the account I, I started on because it, you know, when you work with a client that is spending a lot and making a lot, it's just more experience for you. Definitely. Yeah. I, I myself have seen flow and progressive too many times to count. So it's, it's very Dude, they just, they just had, it's like, it's crazy how quickly that team works. They just had a whole ad that's running right now of like all those characters on a zoom call that they shot 
like over a week. So it, they hustle. It's, 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 it's pretty impressive what they're still doing. Yeah, let, let's get into um, kind of insurance in general in terms of how that works with advertising because I'm a big consumer of NBA. I love basketball. And I feel like the amount of car insurance commercials you see on, uh, when watching sports is insane. So is there any reason they love that TV medium and those sports spots so much? Um, my theory on it, um, and I don't know if I can give you a full, fully like, um, fully right answer here, but I, I look at in something like insurance, which is basically, I, I kind of look at insurance in a similar way to like the light beer category, where basically the difference between a Coors Light and a Bud Light isn't much okay you might not even be able to blind taste test that it's all kind of the same lower quality lower alcohol beer that you can drink quick at a party right so there's really no differentiating factor aside from the brand the brand's the only thing that makes you you know want to want to make that choice which is why there's so much creative advert it's almost like the more creative that the advertising is the more like banal and boring the um or bland, you know, the product is, or the value prop of what they're trying to sell. Because progressive, it's all like, you know, all those like insurance call to actions. It's like switch and save this amount of money um, and get this percentage off. And those numbers are all pretty similar to each other across the categories. So that's why there has to be so much advertising. Definitely. And I, I think it's becoming harder and harder to stand out. And, and this was pre-COVID as well. I just think people in general, the statistics show people are watching less TV uh, there's, there's less of a chance for an average TV spot to reach the demographics they're going yep. after. So I wanted to ask you how you think TV is, was faring pre COVID and also if, uh, COVID has changed that at all. Cause obviously there's no sports on anymore. So some of those ads I'm sure are selling for less than they previously were. Yeah. You know, it's, we're, we're seeing, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think every company right now is with the exceptions of, you know, the Amazons and the Walmarts and the Apples is like seeing sales decline, or at least they did in, in, you know, March and they're going to see it probably through Q2, but getting a message out is still very important. And like, I think what's happening now is while the ad spends might go down, the the messages are changing. So like there needs to be more value messaging and inserting. So it's like why this, this product is like, makes sense for your time at home right now. And I work right now on, um, Airwick, which is like a, you know, an air care product and everyone's kind of excited because it's like people are going to be in their homes now that they want, they want them to smell good. So there's, there's all these shifting, um, like how do you, how do you catch the curve of the conversation and what people are looking for, but also with TV ads, um, you know, it's, it's really all the past few years, it's, it's consistently transition to um, streaming platform. So you're still making like a TV ad, you're making like a video ad, a six second or a 15 second, or maybe even a 30. And those are just playing now on, on the, the Hulus of the world. Um, and like, the, you know, you know the, the, Amazon, the Amazon streaming with ads, some of them have ads. So there's all these streaming platforms that still will run ads as if you're watching TV and that's targeted based on your, uh, you know, your preferences. So it's more effective. It's more effective than TV. Good lead in because that's kind of where I yeah. wanted to go. Um, I, I think in 2020 and years past as well, you hear so much about ad targeting and consumers being targeted based on their browsing history or specific interests they have. To a degree, it does seem like you can do that with streaming. Maybe what type of show I'm into yeah. has, has some reflection of where I am as a consumer and what my interests are. 
what I, where I wanted to take this was online ads and banner ads and, and ads where there's a there's some review of cookies and other type of data that might suggest what the consumer has previously been doing. Yeah. I read this really book, good book called uh, Chaos Monkeys by a product manager who worked at Facebook on their ad platform and just learned some mm-hmm. really interesting things about what Facebook was doing in terms of reviewing everything the consumer had, had done prior to going on Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. buying data from various ad vendors and kind of showing ads based on that. To me, that seems like a higher ROI uh, for the investment for a company looking to place an ad because they have so much more data than the raw statistics you might just get from someone on Netflix or, or Amazon video. Well, you, you're saying like the um, going through Facebook or like a platform. Exactly. It just seems like you could place them better than on a streaming platform. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because it's, it, you're right. It, it's true. It's absolutely right. But what's funny is, you know, when you work in advertising, like, you know, you'll have like a company like Facebook come into your office and they'll buy everyone lunch and They'll make it all professional and they'll basically run you through a deck where they show you all the best trends, the best performancing factors, all the creative tips. So they're giving us information like, like Facebook will come in and say, look, if you mention the product name in the first three seconds of the ad, you're going to get 30% more brand awareness points than if you hadn't. And we know that based on these. So what, so I'm always skeptical about it because a, I'm skeptical of Facebook in general because of the type of shit they pull with political ads and that type of manipulation. And then they come in and they tell like their, their sales pitch is basically like, look, this is what you have to do to be successful. And there's no one really there to, because they, <laughs> because they like out, out data everyone there's, it's hard to push back. So you're basically kind of like, well, okay, whatever you tell us, we'll, and then you know, you're, you're like Facebook now is controlling the conversation of like how ads should be made because they're using certain factors that show X percent more optimization. You know, it used to be like, I remember when organic, like or when I first started the industry, organic social was, was huge. And basically it was Facebook telling companies, you want to build up these organic um, communities for your brand. And what they were doing was they were allowing these companies to build up massive amounts of fans, 100,000, 200,000 fans, and they were able to get all their data and trending information on Facebook. And then two years later, Facebook basically blocked the companies out of that data and said, look, we now have all this data um, through your fan page, but to access it and target these people with ads, we're going to hit you. With, we're going to hit that, that. They changed their model and just started making so much more money and revenue because all of a sudden, like, organic strategy was obsolete and it all went to pay but they used the organic community building to get the data so it's it's we're kind of just like following i don't know i feel like the ad industry is just following what facebook and google you know and even like pinterest like these platforms are telling us works so you're you're seeing a lot of this same type of shit out there that's interesting yeah it kind of sounds like a bait and switch on facebook a little bit a little bit yeah uh, with a lot of the ad stuff I feel like the beginner way of looking at it, which is what I, I do, is thinking about an ROI where the, the return essentially is what the spending is as a result of the ad and the, the mm-hmm. I, the investment, is what you invest in the ad. But clearly, it's not that easy. It's very difficult to tie consumer spending to someone having seen a banner ad unless they just clicked on the banner ad and bought something after the fact. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff does seem directly trackable. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. It's usually clicks. Like, that's what, that's what a lot of... Um, of our like success metrics and KPIs are based on is, is clicks to purchases. And, um, but I think what, where the, where it gets vague is like, all right, would they be just cause they're clicking on our banner ad? Does that mean they weren't thinking of purchasing the product? Otherwise are, you know, 
it's like the analogy they make in that article to window shopping. It's like, were you going there to buy it or do you see it and, and want to go in store? Right. Like it was their intent ahead of time. Yeah. And I don't know. Uh, it's, it's interesting because the, the company I work for does a ton in email marketing and a lot of the, the products, one of the products we offer uh, essentially is this flow building tool where consumers who had previously purchased certain items, you know, to send them specific emails based on their behavior. Um, so that, that kind of gets to your point of there's often an intent. So if someone was intending to purchase something and click through an ad, should that really be as high right. ROI as someone who had never purchased before and becomes a customer as a result of an ad? Right. It's, you know, and <laughs> I think sometimes like data, it, it's hard because sometimes even, even on Instagram, everyone who's on Instagram, you're usually getting ads that like are pretty close to like what you're looking to purchase or what you're interested in buying. And like, it's a little scary and freaky, but the other way to look at it is like, this is making, <laughs> in some ways it's more effective like marketplace because you're just, you're seeing what you what you know you like, what, what you're in. It's like Spotify, man. When Spotify recommends a song to you, you usually like it. And I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's okay or if that's like something that we should be afraid of, but it's a little bit of a bigger conversation where like, are we letting these algorithms work in our favor or do we see them, you know, entirely as the enemy? Yeah. That's I don't a know. Whole, whole nother that's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother yes. That's like, that's like, that's like West, getting into Westworld type. Yeah. Type I did want to briefly touch on this article you sent me that makes the case, I'll put this in the show notes that online ads are in a bit of a bubble right now. So in 2018, 273 billion was the total spend on digital ads globally. And I'm sure if you ask a Facebook, uh, they think that number is going to continue to go up. And they obviously have, yeah. have said a ton about the value of their platform and why digital ads are going to continue to gain in value as the amount of data they have goes up. I thought this was a really interesting read. Um, I, I think it really gets directly at the concept we were talking before of what is the R in ROI? Like what is return and does it justify the investment you'll make in it? So talk a little bit about this article and a potential bubble in online ads. So what this, and it's, it's kind of crazy because I just read this article like last night and finished it this morning. So I don't, I, you know, um, it's very new information to like me that I'm seeing. Basically it makes the argument that these targeting mod models are getting so good based on, um, what we know. It's like when you, when you target a product to a, like a consumer, you're, it's very nuanced. It's like, this is like a 35 to 45 year old mother who has two kids who are one, maybe might be at home. The other two are in, in college and she's welcoming them back three times a year. And when they come back home, she wants to set her house nicely so that her family can feel comfortable, which means she's interested in these types of products. And like these sets are so specific that what this article saying is, if you know the target, maybe they just, you just have recognized these people want to make these purchases regardless of advertising. So you can't predicate that you're advertising what's successfully making them purchase the products. And they, they, one thing they call out in that study is eBay was burning. I think it was like, I think it was like $25 million a year. If the article, I got to check the article again on paid advertising on Google with, with search engine optimization, which basically anytime someone searched eBay, an eBay ad would come up on the um, the top ahead of the ahead of the actual website, and basically the, the, this guy used this as an example to illustrate his point. But he's saying people who are searching eBay online, because really this article deals in, in it, it gets into digital ads, but it's more I think about search engine optimization. It's saying that look, 
you were going to Yahoo anyway. You were searching it in Google. You don't need you don't need to see an ad for it if you were already interested in going to the site. So a lot of that advertising you can't you can't act like it's successful if it's people already already on on the funnel to that um, to that buying experience. That makes yeah complete sense to me. And I, I think now with COVID making budgets very constrained, we may see a recognition over which ads are really adding value and which aren't. Uh, that leads to we'll we'll talk about uh, we have a bunch of things that we're yeah talk we, about we'll today. keep it moving but, uh, but I do want to I do want to close kind of this advertising section with what changes are you seeing on your job on day to day basis because of COVID and do you have any predictions for the future of the industry as a result of COVID? Uh, yeah, I'd say I'm uh, bearish on the industry in in a, in a lot of ways, and I'm 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 skept I'm. I'm, I think I'm cynical a little bit because, you know, I've kind of have like a little bit of uh, career fatigue or I've been doing like, you know, it's like the same. I love, I, I, I like my job a lot. It's, it's always been exciting, but I don't think the model is sustainable. The ad agency model is sustainable as everything gets more based on, um, on data points and there's going to be efficiencies like these Facebook is, you know, these companies like Facebook have the power to, tell you what types of ads you need and make them for you and package it all together in a way, um, way more efficient, like plan than what you get with like an ad agency, a media vendor, a production company. So it's threatening. And I, I don't know, I think um, with, especially if this, if, if more and more information comes out that it's not as necessary as everyone thought it was in the long term. Like I think brands will ultimately, I think advertising is a lot about communication too. So brands still want to communicate um, to their consumers. It, it's not always about making a, um, you know, sell. It's not, it's not always about selling. A lot of times it's about um, brand recognition and, um, you know, what a brand wants to, wants to ultimately say to the world and be about. So there's a level of brand building that's not always about sales, which is still important. But I, I think the ad agency model um, over time is going gonna, is gonna to fade out. That's really interesting. I'm sure it's an opportunity for some up and coming startups or even large companies yep. to innovate within themselves. Yeah. That kind of brings me to my next topic, which is working for startups versus working for medium sized companies versus working for large companies and, and company culture in general. This is something I want to talk to you about because both you and I have worked for all different manner and size of companies yeah. and have seen how different it can be <laughs> in different environments. So yeah, first off, I want to ask, how do you think size impacts company culture? And what have you kind of witnessed from working for, I mean, you worked for a startup pretty recently and you've worked for large companies. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one thing that's funny is with this COVID, with everything that's happening with all of us working from home, like I'm very interested in what it's going to do for company culture because I was having like, I was having a conversation with some family members last night and I was saying, I've actually, I, I found myself to be pretty effective at my job in this mode. And you know, it's not, it, there's times where it's like, look, I don't have a meeting all afternoon. doesn't mean I don't have work to do, but that doesn't mean I should need to sit at my desk in front of my computer twiddling my thumbs like I would have at the office. You know, like I think there's ways to be just as effective, if not more effective at your job. You know, it doesn't have to, it's, I think this, this idea and this culture idea of like going into an office at 9 a.m. and being there till six or seven, and a lot of times you actually only need to really be in a room two or three times throughout that day with people to like prove your validation for why you're there. Like I think that's going to 
do some weird things to company culture. It's like a lot of, t- a lot of times, one of the reasons ad agencies are attractive, like I said before, is because they have, they have these great company cultures. They have happy hours on Thursdays and ping pong tables. And, you know, there's always good food around and you're kind of socializing and hanging out with these people. And it, it does provide a nice like community sense, but I'm wondering how many people after this, especially people that are have like two hour commutes to New York city are going to be like, I'm, I, there's no way I need to do that. I mean, does it like, and I'm interested to hear what you think about this. It's like, does it move to like you come in two or three times a week and you have afternoon meetings or you might decide like, you know what, I want to go to the office today and get out of my house. Um, but can they ever make it? Does it ever go back to a norm of being a, a full time in the office work environment again? Is that, is our company's going to be able to do that and attract talent? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I worked for a, I've worked for a company where I was full time remote and I also worked for a company that had the arrangement you kind of mentioned where you might be in the office two to three days a week and you may work from home t- uh, two to three days a week. And this came about because they were, they were space constrained. So they actually needed right. people to work from home due to desk availability. I think what I saw from that experience was I selectively planned my work from home days depending on what type of work was on my plate. Mm. So we also have the similarity where I think you your job requires a lot of creative brain power. And there are sometimes you just need to be alone and need to think about things really critically and you don't benefit from someone walking up behind you and saying, yeah. hey, Nick, what about this? It, you yeah. know, me too. I feel like if I need to write a ton of code or need to kind of plan out the architecture for something, I like to be alone. I like to take walks and think about it, like to diagram. And, you know, there are definitely coding sessions I'll have where it's just, you know, four to even eight plus hours with, with me just headphones on, just kind of going at it. And, and when I knew I had to do that, those were the days I would work from home and I would just turn Slack off and I right. just go out. And those were some of my most productive days ever. So it's been interesting to hear some of my buddies talking about, oh, I'm so much more productive working from home because I, I think I've seen that uh, a ton before. I'm, on the flip side, there are days I wanted to go into the office because there was a product manager I needed to talk to. There were a couple people I needed to, to sit down and whiteboard something with. And that, that kind of stuff is hard to do over Zoom. I, I don't think yeah, it's, it it's absolutely experience. So I think there's a place for both. Anyone saying that you know, you, full-time remote is, is optimal or full-time in the office is optimal, I think is wrong. I think the answer is somewhere in between. I agree. I totally agree, man. I think one of the things that comes out of this is we realize that like Zoom calls, it's not the real, it's not the real. There's so much um, un, like nonverbal communication that happens you know, when you're when in, in a work environment that I think we're going to like be a little bit starved for after this. And it, you know, I don't know, Zoom, Zoom can be a pain in the ass. Like even, even uh, <laughs> like I had a few calls uh, with some buddies last week and they're one of them. I was like, guys, I just like, I'm just zoomed out today. I've been on calls all day. Like, it, and I think there's going to, this is going to like help like progress how we communicate in business because it's going to be a little bit of, we're going to take, I, we're going to take, I think the most efficient parts of both, you know, and move forward with it. Yeah, I have a couple of issues with some calls. I think my biggest one is just by virtue of the fact that you're on your computer, you certainly could have another window. And I've seen it. If you just look at people's eyes, you can see the, the scan. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm like perpetrator number one of that. Me, me yeah. too. I, I certainly am guilty of it. And I think it's inevitable, right? Your computer well, is thing, this incredible I'm machine. Still, I'm still, you know, again, I don't mean to like... I'm still having status meetings. Like, I feel like I, I think if I had one big critique to make in advertising, it's the amount of status meetings you have that 
it's like they've taken away from time you could be doing work and I, I don't need to be sitting on a status call hearing updates for projects that I'm not working on. Like that, that to me just seems like, I think we're going to be able to see these efficiencies inefficiencies more clearly after this and be able to call them out and like let people work. I think people are going to be able to work more effectively and there's going to be less time needed feeling like you need to be on call or on, on Slack or at, at an office. Absolutely. It reminds me of this really good Paul Graham essay that I love. It's called Make Your Schedule, Manage Your Schedule. And the idea is for the first four or so hours of the day, you just have all communication, Slack, email, whatever off. And it's just your time to be a content creator, uh, write code, uh, produce creative content, whatever you need to do. And then the final part of the day, that could be the collaboration time or time Mm -hmm. to have meetings. But having that strict delineation makes it easier to separate stuff. I think one challenge I sometimes have working from home is, hey, I have this meeting from 12 to one and I have a meeting from three to four. So from one to three, I guess I can do work, but I have to make sure that work doesn't really take me away for more than two hours. So it feels very choppy sometimes when you, yeah. you have a schedule like that. Yeah, it does. It does. I think we're still in the early, I think we're still in the early phases of this. Like it's kind of, you know, what was it? What was I reading about the other day? The, uh, it's like, maybe it wasn't called the triangle shirt fire in like New York city where like basically it was the, the event. It was basically like the first time they realized that we can't have children working seven days a week in like factories in New York. And that was just, that was just like the norm and no one really thought anything of it until this fire happened and killed like 160 people. That number might, I'd have to fact check that number, but and then reporters everywhere were like, this is, there's some serious issues going on. I'm not comparing this like directly do what's happening, but sometimes it takes events like this to see all the, like to expose all the, the issues. I, I totally agree with that. I think like companies are like people. Like one thing I found living with my family, it's like you're very keen on noticing, um, you get very close with people when you're living with them, especially during this. And I'm, I'm noticing this, this whole thing has a great way of like exposing um, people's strengths and weaknesses. And I also think it does the same thing for corporations. Like you, you see, okay, what are we doing right? And what are we doing that doesn't really, doesn't really make sense right now? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, this is another one. I'd love to do a whole podcast with you. Yeah, on. It, I, I think history is spiky, right? Like there are, Things, there's a status quo and then there's a massive change and then things are forever changed after that. Right. Speaking of status quos and massive changes, yeah. here's the topic we, uh, we were really excited to talk about, crypto. Let's do it, baby. Which for a very long time seems to have been threatening this fiat cash status quo, but it's never quite got there. Uh, and I know you've been on crypto a long time. Full disclosure, I own some. I know you own some. I, I think I'll start off by saying that well, Crypto has been in the news a ton starting, I think, Friday or maybe it was Thursday when this Paul Tudor Jones letter came out. So Paul Tudor Jones is a legendary investor. Um, he's just an incredible trader. He's been great at identifying market trends. Highly recommend this book called Market Wizards, which has a really good interview with, with uh, PTJ, Paul Tudor Jones, that kind of gets into his investing strategy. So anyways, he wrote this letter where he revealed that uh, he is going to trade Bitcoin futures and he thinks Bitcoin is an asset class. Uh, has a lot of room to run. And I think a lot of people now are taking a second look at it. So I'll start off by asking you, um, what originally kind of got you bullish on crypto? And what did you think about Paul Tudor Jones's letter? 
Well, yeah, th thanks. And I'm, I'm excited to talk to this with <laughs> talk about this with you. First of all, I, I don't know if you remember, but you're the first friend I had to bought crypto. I, I remember. I remember. I don't know if you, that's a compliment, or I, I, I remember. I remember when you when you were like, "I have to buy some of this." <laughs> yeah, but I, I was kind of like him in, in that letter where I bought it with a very very small allocation just to see what the fuss was about. Just like him, I had it double almost immediately. But unlike him, I did not sell <laughs> on the double. So I think so like you, I'm down yeah, half. So I think it's right funny. Now. It's funny because I'm late. Like I've really only. Um, owned cryptocurrency for like nine months. Like I started, I started getting in on it last summer. Um, I had a, uh, I have a neighbor, a family friend of ours who like over like beers, two hours, one night, this guy like convinced me to get to, to, to jump in. And he like, he is so bullish on like, I think he is like 90% of his portfolio in crypto and like his family's portfolio. And like, he's, he's, um, he just, we had a great conversation about it. And I think one thing that's funny that I've noticed, and he also like, he rode the spike in, uh, what was the big, is it 2016? Um, oh yeah, like all 2016 through 2018, I right, think the so price action was like a thousand. It was insane, it was insane. And he, he basically like rode that wave up and then watched all of his money come down, but he hasn't sold it yet because I think he still sees the value in it. Um, and I feel like with crypto, there's people who are like pre-bubble pre, uh, crypto owners who like saw their money double and then fucking crash. And then people like me who like kind of got into it after that, that wave, uh, that crescendo came down and now is hopefully going to build up again. Um, and honestly, here's, here's like the short answer of why I, first of all, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, fraction of my portfolio. I would, I, I am not willing to be like, I'm putting more than 30% of my money in, in crypto that would be like the high end for me um but i see it as like if you're betting on the future and where things are going and what's going to change in the way we think about money um i think it's just like it's just like owning gold are are frankly like a metal in that you want something like for me the way i see it is look like this is my um inflation hedge and it's also like as <laughs> I, I'm not someone like I think when you tell people you own crypto, a lot of people are like, well, I don't understand it. And it's like, I'll be honest with you, like, I don't fully understand. I'm, I can't talk to you about exactly why a blockchain is valuable and, and the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. I can't. But I also can't really tell you why, you know, I, I, I'd be lying. I think the same type of people that ask that you need to ask them in return, like, well, are you reading business reports and quarterly earnings reports for the companies you're investing in? Like, do you really know how this company's making money? Or are you just going off it because the brand is somewhat sexy? And I think with crypto, what you're investing in is this long-term um, technology that's superior to like a fiat currency. And especially now when there's so much unrest in the country and we're printing stimulus checks and bailing out banks and you, you know there's gonna be a wave of people defaulting on you know, their loans and, and lease agreements. And because of this, I think it feels kind of like a safe, a safer hedge in the, like, there's only a finite amount. And the swings are, it's also kind of a fun, I'll be honest with you, like my cryptocurrency, it's by far like the most exciting asset I own. And it teaches you discipline with how to weather these, weather these swings. I, I think it's just interesting because it could be in a very nice, I think it's still in a very early phase and I'm betting on um, the potential. Yeah. You use the word hedge, which I've heard a ton from the pro crypto people, which I think is interesting. 
I think I just have to come out and say I, I'm not anti-crypto, but I'm not increasing my allocation to it, which is infinitesimal in the context of my portfolio. <laughs> the reason I take so much issue with the word hedge is if you look at the drop from you know, late February to March 23rd when the market saw the bottom, crypto lagged behind the S&P a ton. I think it got halved almost immediately. And well, crypto has outperformed, I think, the S&P over the last 10 years. I just don't think from a correlation perspective, it's as reliable a hedge as gold or even bonds. I mean, Paul Tudor Jones goes through kind of these different assets that you could own that are comparable to Bitcoin. You list financial assets, fiat cash, and gold. Um, and he rates them on purchasing power, trustworthiness, liquidity, and portability. So Bitcoin actually overall has the worst rating of the four. However, P2J basically says, well, the asset class is so small compared to all of these other three. Um, the natural conclusion is it has to grow in size. I, I think that's an interesting argument. But again, I, I'm having issues seeing why I would use this as a hedge rather than gold or even stocks. So what are your thoughts on why you think this is a good hedge? For me, it's like, look, I, I'd rather put all my hedge plays in like, keep them focused. And I think crypto is like, frankly, like the, the, the bet I'm willing to make on that. Um, because I don't have the, you know, I, if I had the, the capital to be in gold, be in crypto, like I, I would, but I think it's, frankly, it's like, look, the way I look at it is I'm, I'm 30 and I'm single and I have a steady income right now. I'm able to live at my parents' place during this, which is, which is w without a doubt, privilege. And I understand that. Um, I don't have to like stay in New York City. I can, my discretionary spending can comes way down. And I think I can be risk averse. And frankly, I think the potential payout of this is <laughs> there, there is a bigger, um, there's a bigger opportunity to like, to be involved in something at an early stage that could, could be massive. Definitely. Uh, I buy I the think, argument think, that. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Sorry. I, I buy the argument that it could be part of a basket of hedges. So I also own gold, and I've been really happy with gold's performance since this crisis started. Crypto, I suppose, has come all the way back. If you look at charts, you know, crypto dropped, bottomed dropped, out, and then it, now is right it, back it, to even again. It dropped ten percent last night after I told my brother to do to, to buy. So great, Max, great timing for this yeah, podcast. Max is probably uh, yeah, a little pissed yeah. at me. The other thing with crypto too is when you say crypto, right? There's any number of things you could be referring to. And I was talking to Sean about this, who's going to be on the podcast tonight. So you, you could buy crypto, and by that you could buy Bitcoin, Ether, Ripple, a, a ton of them, or you could yeah. buy kind of tertiary plays on crypto. So one of those, to me, is the GPU makers, right? So if you assume mining is going to go up, people are going to buy my, more GPUs and kind of more compute time such that they're able to create the coins. So I think NVIDIA, AMD, even AWS, it, well, I don't think the cloud actually allows you. They have strict policies against uh, using AWS assets for crypto mining. But again, any type of server resource that caters to uh, mining, I don't understand why you wouldn't just buy that as opposed to buying the digital coins. 
Yeah, I guess Bitcoin just has such Bitcoin and Ethereum seem like they have such a like a head start as the entrance here that they're just the ones that people like as far as that trustworthiness level goes, at least for me, it's like I'm not really interested in stepping outside Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum because I just I don't have the time to learn about them. And like that's like an honest, you know, response. Totally fair. Uh, uh, my research from four years ago, I think when I first started looking at it and talking to you about it. How was much, when, Ethereum? You, you bought one coin, right? Yeah, I bought one Ethereum <laughs> and one Bitcoin. I think uh, I think I'm down fifty percent plus on both of them. It's pretty shitty, but I remember liking <laughs> Ethereum. Not if you, if you, if you'd held right. Uh, it seemed like a lot of technology people like the Ethereum protocol, and obviously Ether and Ethereum are very different. I won't get into that, but a lot of technology people. I've heard say, well, look at the code bases, look at who maintains them, look at the protocol. These are all relevant factors to consider. But when I listen to the Wall Street people, it's just like Bitcoin is a proxy for everything. So that seems a little strange to me too, that one currency can represent the entire group. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I think, I just, I think in a time like, if there's a time, if Bitcoin, if cryptocurrency is gonna take off, Okay, it's going to be it's going to be because of COVID-19 and the instability of, um, of, of, of government currency. And I think it's like, let's just wait and see. I think these next if if look, if there's not a, if, if six months, if you and I talk again in six months and crypto is still hovering at the same price point, I will be very less. Um, I'll be very less bullish on it. Yeah, this, this was one I, I was going to ask like, you about. So like, price action and price itself. Like, you, know, you say if it trades sideways, you won't feel as good about it. Like, in six what months. if it goes to a thousand bucks? What if it goes to a hundred thousand bucks? Like, at what point are you like, I'm a buyer, I'm a seller? Well, so I do, this is this this is this gets into some philosophy and I think like human nature because I think I was talking to my neighbor, the um my like my like Bitcoin guru um who got me in on this. And he rode the swing. He rode the wave in 2016 to 2018, and I think was up massive amounts of money. I mean, you know, if you bought if you bought ten Bitcoin for four hundred dollars in 2009, you know, you were seeing like six hundred percent returns on your money or something at the at the when it hit twenty two thousand dollars. So there's stories of you know people. I love those stories of people. I have a friend from high school. There's like a rumor that he put like you know. $1,200 of his bar mitzvah money in Bitcoin in 2006 and basically like was able to quit his job last year because he made so much, uh, <laughs> you know, he made so much returns on, on it. But I digress. I'm trying to, I'm trying to go back to the question. Okay. So I think my, this, this family friend who told me said, there's such a level, you realize what greed is when it, when an asset starts exponential growth like that, you aren't able like I, I was, he was having a, he's, and he's a very smart guy. He was, and he didn't sell. And he was like, look, you just, you, you just think it's going to keep going up, you know? So I think to, to your point, you have to mark like, at what point am I selling? And for me, I've always said, look, if I can get this thing to a point where I could sell it and pay off my student loans, I think I'd do it. I like that. So there's kind of a, a return you have in mind. So you're, you're confident of saying, I expect this return, I will sell at, at this point. I, 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 I hope that I would have the um, discipline to actually do it. Yeah. Gotcha. I think what's difficult for me with crypto is a lot of things I own, I, I tend to think I'll never sell unless I need the liquidity for some specific reason. And that's why I really like stocks. Like everything in my portfolio, I tend to think 
I can just collect dividends. There's going to be substantial growth. I feel great about it. Like, I, I like owning stuff where it's a secular growth industry and the company has great earnings and I like the management. And I can, I can say I have a thesis where if management continues to do this and the company reports these types of earnings, I can just hold it and feel fine. I'm not sure how to do the same temperature checks with crypto, right? Like how do you yeah, get a man, sense of how the asset class is doing? It's the wild west and it's running on Saturdays and Sundays. Like I woke up this morning. It's like, Oh great. You know, 10% down overnight, you know, but it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a pet that you're having trouble training and you're like, it's just kind of freaking me out. But this, this could be a prize. This could be a prize dog. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you like it as a store of values. Clearly you've held it for a long time. Do you think not really never- though, Ben? I've only, I've only, I've only had it for. I've only really, I basically like had a steady dollar cost average approach to it since August. Since August, though, I, I think that's longer than a lot of people who hold crypto. Right. So yeah. I, I think you should pat yourself on the back for that. No thanks. I, I guess I'm like I'm like too, I'm like in too deep to turn back now. And uh, gotcha. So my follow up though was you're going to hold it and you like it as a, a store of value. Do you think you there would ever be a scenario? where you would actually use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to transact, to buy coffee or, or whatever it may be? Um, that's a great question. I don't think so. I don't think I care about it like that yet because I'm also like interested in getting like, you know, uh, travel rewards on the credit cards that I pay off. So I don't, you know, until, until there's, until I, I, it's a good question. I, I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to, but I'm not interested in that part of it yet. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, the, the credit card reward points thing for me is huge. I didn't even think about that because that's a, I love using my credit card for yeah. that specific reason. The, the thing uh, Jones calls out in his letter is he keeps talking about the GMT, so the great monetary inflation. It's the idea that you know, M2, the supply of money, will it already has increased rapidly as a result of all the money that's been pumped into the system through COVID. And that if you assume people start spending money and the economy picks up a bit, we should see this incredible inflation where not only is the money supply increased, but people are taking loans out, people are putting more money into the system. And then we have this hyperinflation where fiat money becomes worthless. I'm a, a bit skeptical on that because we've now heard this probably five to seven times in my lifetime, whether it was 2008, 2009. Uh, whether it was the Eurozone crisis. I mean, there have been so many occasions where the Fed has pumped money into the system, yet inflation has been a steady 2% uh, for most of our lifetime. So I'm not saying it can't happen. I just think it's really interesting that the, yeah, don't you the think, don't you think being called out. Don't but, you think maybe it's hard, like, you know, uh, there's, there's this David McCullough quote that I always, I, always, I always like to reference to make myself seem smart, but it goes uh, that uh, history, or sorry, um, history is the antidote to the hubris of the present. Do you understand? I love that quote. Expand on that. Yeah. So basically, we always think we're living in like, it's, this, is, this is to your point. This is more of a discussion. I don't know if this is necessarily a question, but like we always think we're living in like the craziest times and like this is going to be the the biggest election ever and it's like i think every generation just you just feel that in the moment but like you look back on like vietnam man or like the silver matthias and i were talking about like the civil war the other night like if we think that if if we like we've been through crazy shit before as like a country and we've we've found a way out of it um 
but I don't know. I guess like I'm like going against that quote in some ways and saying like this one feels like a little different, even if you are someone who studies history, um, like the global, the, the global level that it's at. And the fact that it's like there's a level of um, fear of community. I think there's, there's, there's going to be some psychological impacts of this that are going to seriously change things. Um, so I don't know, like, even for like, it's like, I'm, I'd be interested to know, like, where you're at with like your investments. And if you think we're going to see, like, if it's going to be more of a W than a V or if it's going to be like a reverse, if it's going to get worse, like, I don't, I don't know what happens. That, that's such a great call out. I have so many thoughts on this. <laughs> so I actually think when it comes to investing there, there's many camps, there's many different thoughts on this, but I do think there are two distinct camps in that it, it, this draws back to your McCulloch quote, right? One camp is everything is going to change massively and you need to invest in companies that are Corona proof and, and have businesses that benefit from the massive paradigm shifts taking place. And then there's a camp that basically says, well, you know, you look at the fact that Carnival had a 600% increase in, uh, in reservations, but you know, come August and that, uh, after nine 11, people started flying again in, in huge numbers a couple months down the line. That camp believes that the world will go, will back to, go back to normal and you should buy assets that are deeply discounted because of this return to normalcy. I think I'm in between those two. I definitely own stocks in both camps. You, know, <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly heard me in my newsletter call out Chef's Warehouse. Chef's Warehouse totally is a play on things going back to normal. I know. I know yeah. it is. I know, I know you've Same with Starbucks. Yes. I call that Starbucks too in my letter. Well, then like, I, also, I, I, bought, yeah. I, I bought some Peloton, which I know you and I have talked about a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, all the growth stocks I talked about in my last letter, whether it was like Peloton, Shopify, Wayfair, uh, these are all play. I mean, Beyond Meat's another one. All of them are plays on disruptions but, in the supply chain and kind of the new normal post-COVID. So yeah, don't I, you have to, don't you yeah. have to separate, don't you have to separate consumer confidence with like, um, reality? Like, it's like, okay, great. That like, it's, it's like, that's great. That like, like, I don't know what person is thinking about going on a cruise right now. Like that to me seems like a well, very, apparently 600% more <laughs> than previous. I know, but I'm, I guess my point is you got to have like higher minds prevail a little bit. It's like, all right, like what happens if, if someone on that cruise and again, this is like, the, and I don't know the answers to this, but it just seems to me like, okay, all of a sudden Carnival sends a cruise out in August. There's another outbreak because there's no treatment or vaccine yet. And that spreads, it's now spreading the, the nature of a cruise. It spreads this thing now to other countries. And all of a sudden we realize, shit, this thing's not nearly under control. And we take two steps backwards again. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think, I think we, we, we all have to like dis make a distinction between consumer confidence and like, the reality of what this science is telling us here, which is like hard to accept sometimes. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think there's a ton of irrational exuberance. There's a ton of overconfidence. And I say that even though some really reliable money has come into these names, like the Saudis, you know, and their sovereign wealth fund put a huge amount of money into one of the cruise lines. So I think there is a prevalent belief among some investors that they're, they're discounting the scenario you just described where the cruise lines get back to normal and they can just, everything is fine and nothing changes. And I, I actually think I, I side more with you. And, and this is a strange parallel, but I being such a huge MBA fan, I've just been devouring yeah. articles about how yeah. the MBA is going to return. So the, 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 I think sports, I think sports, out. sports the, the sport, I want, I want you to finish your point, but I think it's going to, I'm really interested as like how the professional sports league, 
like become leaders in this movement out yep. of lockdown. Okay, so me too, and I could uh, this is I could talk about this forever. But the NBA proposal is so strange to me. They're talking about something called the bubble. It is literally called the bubble, and it's the this idea that all the players and coaches and trainers go into these two or three hotels or kind of a a set of hotels. It could be in Disney world. It could be in Las Vegas, wherever. And they don't interact with anyone and they just play basketball with no fans present. And this is how things go on for months. You know, you play the Eastern conference finals, Western conference finals, all the way up to the finals. And to me, I just think that you have to suspend disbelief to to think that will work. Right. Like these are guys who a lot of them just got, got out of college and they have a ton of money and they, they, they like to be social and I don't think you can, you can like do jail. that, right? Like it takes one person to go out into the normal world, get COVID, infect the rest of the people, and then your season's shut down. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, it's, and the it's, NFL just released the full schedule, right? Like the NFL truly believes that week one will be whatever, Bucks um, versus the Saints. And like you know, you'll see Tom Brady with 50,000 people in the stands. Right. It's and such I, a I think – that projection of reality, and we're seeing a ton of the same stuff in the stock market, you definitely have to have some beliefs which easily could be punctured. Absolutely. I don't know, which side are you on on this? I, I think, I feel like I toggle back and forth. Like, I, I feel like I go back and forth on it because in some ways I'm like, you know, this idea of fear is like a very, like for instance, like my parents, my parents had their birthday two weeks ago. They had a birthday on the same day and they were going to have, it was like, it was like, you know, four weeks, five weeks into lockdown. And we, you know, we hadn't seen any friends. So my parents were like, they wanted to have some friends over to our house to like sit, sit in the backyard and, and have some drinks. And like a few people were like, look, like we're not really comfortable with it yet. Do like do that. And then I, I, I was talking to my parents and like, you know, you can't really blame these people yet. Like, we now have this like level of fear where it's even just going to see friends. Like there's a barrier, there's going to be barriers to this thing. Even if, even after they tell us that we can just go back to normal, how are they going to fill it? And like, like even if they let fans into a sports game, who's going to feel comfortable with it? And that freaks me out. I'm not saying that's a good, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I actually think that's a terrible thing because there's going to be people, even when it makes sense, like, look, this thing's really under control. We've isolated it. Um, hospitals are prepared. There's still going to be people being like, I'm not comfortable going to a restaurant. And that, like, how does the restaurant industry come out of this in New York City? I mean, the, the one pushback I'd have on your point there is I think from a statistics perspective, you always have to kind of drop your anecdotal evidence and personal beliefs. I, I think there are at least several million people who will feel comfortable not only going to an NFL game, but going on a cruise and a quick story I wanted to tell on this, cause I think it's very relevant for investing is there's this rule of investing. One of my buddies told me, which is whatever you're investing in a company and you're looking at the product, please forget whatever you personally think about the product. And one of these that recently happened was Peloton where I remember <laughs> saying when I first heard about like who would pay $2,200 for this digital bike and then pay 40 bucks a month to be part of this uh, class service. And it turns out a ton of people, it turns yeah. out they just had record sales for the first quarter and the stock has just gone bonkers. So I think you always have to assume that how you feel about a situation or your friends or family do is not representative of the total population. It's a great, it's a great piece of advice. It is. 
like I, I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to think that way more. And again, like I come, I don't have like a classic, like finance background. So like it's things like that, which is, I, I appreciate that type of, uh, that type of input and outlook on it because I definitely do that. <laughs> oh, awesome, man. I mean, I, I feel, well, I, 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 I will say I, I do, I do, I do, uh, I do own some carnival too, but I bought it in March when I thought it was, uh, you know, when it's like, this is going to bounce back. I'm thinking about back. buying some, I'll, I'll be quite honest. I, I see those booking numbers and I think, you know, you think about a stock is the sum of its discounted cash flows, right? The, a company reports zero earnings for two or three quarters but if you're looking at 10 years of future earnings that resemble what the past used to look like, the stock should at least trade at 75% of where it was previously at, right? Like I, I, I've definitely read some math on this. And I think with COVID, when you look at these deeply discounted names, whether there's their airlines or cruise lines, if you can say, well, the stock won't get diluted, they won't need to raise that much capital, they can weather on, and the next decade is going to be fine. I think you can put your money on it and, and feel safe. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but who knows, maybe the world completely changes and maybe the next decade, we never see cruise lines return to the same profitability they used to have. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like, if, if it gets worse, <laughs> we have like, we have bigger problems than people wanting to go on cruises, you know? And that, that's the, I mean, that's the debate. But nutshell, you and I, man. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep it tabs on carnival and Bitcoin and see which of those, uh, we'll monitor those over time. Hell yeah. I, I would like, so on my other, uh, Sean, I think, I, have carnival, a bet. I think, I think carnival Ben is like a great, um, exemplary stock of like consumer confidence and how companies come out of this. Yep. Totally. I mean, I, we should do that. So we're going to say carnival versus Bitcoin. The other one I was going to mention is Sean and I are doing, uh, QQQ, which is a rough proxy for the NASDAQ versus um, BRKB, so Berkshire. Oh, wow. So it's a great, like, another so, old versus new. Oh, maybe we can, we can end on this point, but I've been listening to this podcast, Professor G Show, Scott Galloway. I'm not sure if you've uh, got into any of his stuff, but he does a great weekly podcast. And he was saying this week marked a big tectonal uh, shift in – the Berkshire Hathaway, like basically he's like the Amazon shareholder letter is the new Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> earnings report, our, our forecast. Like as far as like what's the North Star of investing advice and news, like Amazon has now. Bezos being like, I'm not investing the earnings back in because we're like, we got a long-term play here, potentially getting into healthcare. Like, I kind of love that. Even though the stock did not respond well to it, I think Bezos is such a genius with having his eyes on the future. And, and everyone, every CEO so, talks about this, but very few actually do it. Every CEO says, well, quarterly earnings don't matter to as much, as much as investing in the company long-term. Bezos always walks the walk, right? He so, is always thinking about 10 years down the line. To that point, and my dad had this quote, my dad and I were talking about it last night. <laughs> my dad's like, look, can you give me a reason? And I want you to give me the reason why I wouldn't put all my money into Amazon. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't disagree with where your dad is coming from on that. I mean, the only reasons I would offer are diversification, right? It's never good <laughs> to have all the eggs <laughs> in one basket. <laughs> and also, I mean, I think for them, another legitimate risk is Antitrust. government intervention, right? Yeah. Like they've already been kind of investigated for being this monopoly. You look at what happened to Microsoft in the 90s, 
I, I think it's very likely in our lifetime you see Amazon broken off into different components. Having one company be that dominant, and I'm a shareholder, so obviously I want what's best for my shares. But as a member of society, I, I have conflicting <laughs> beliefs as to what is if it's so if it's good for a company to be dominant in retail, e-commerce, uh, server space. I, I mean, third-party marketplaces. Yeah, and we're not even maybe talking healthcare, about healthcare, and education. Amazon, you man. I mean, it, it could definitely happen. That's like a whole other conversation is what this is going to do to education. But I feel like I'll, well, I'll have to come back for a part two. We, we got to have you back on. Dude, uh, I love This was awesome, man. I had a lot of fun. I really awesome conversation, it. man. Thanks yeah. so much for being on. And uh, yeah, we'll have you on for part two. Thanks, man. That was great. Thanks again, Nick. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.